I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. just listening to Tulsa native and gospel singer Anthony Mason and his band performing at the commemorative ceremony for the 100th anniversary of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. I traveled to Tulsa for this historic occasion, and I wanted to share the experience with you all in this post-season special episode. The official centennial occurred on May 31st and June 1st of this year, 2021, as those were the days the Tulsa Race Massacre occurred on 100 years ago though there were several weeks worth of events to commemorate this moment in time. While this podcast does a deep dive exploration into the Tulsa Race Massacre and the Black experience in Oklahoma in its first season, Tulsa has been in the news and media such a great deal over the last several years that the centennial seemed to capture so much of the nation's attention. It seemed as if more people than ever before have begun to understand the magnitude of what occurred in Tulsa a century ago and the resulting devastation that continues to reverberate throughout the city today. This episode is a glimpse into my trip to Tulsa during the centennial commemorative events. My hope is that you can experience some of what I experienced if you couldn't be there yourselves though this special episode will depict only a fraction of weeks worth of commemorative events, I believe you'll find it incredibly insightful. Before we begin, a brief aside. Depending on when you're listening to this episode, you may have noticed a bit of a gap between the end of the last season and this episode, as well as the next season. There are a few reasons for this. One, life. Also, I'm taking some much needed time to work on season three, which I'm really excited about. Season three will take a deep dive into several important events and places in North Carolina's history during the 19th and 20th century. One key event we'll explore is the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898, also known as the Wilmington Massacre of 1898 or the Wilmington Coup of 1898. The massacre that occurred on November 10th, 1898, was the site of a bloody insurrection carried out by white supremacists in Wilmington, North Carolina. It is known as the only successful coup d'etat in the history of the United States, as the perpetrators of the coup facilitated the violent overthrow of a duly elected biracial government made up of Black and white citizens. Part of this overthrow included the massacre and slaughter of dozens, potentially hundreds of innocent Black civilians, mass destruction of their property, and the exile of a number of prominent Black and white leaders. Before the coup, Wilmington was North Carolina's largest city. It was also a majority Black. After the coup, an exodus of thousands of Black citizens fleeing violence, brutality, and a repressive social order quickly turned it into a majority white city. But this story is not only about a bloody insurrection in a North Carolina city at the end of the 19th century. It's also about a larger methodical strategy by white supremacists to reverse almost every gain Blacks had made since Reconstruction. Most importantly, the right to vote and hold office. It would not be a stretch to say that the white supremacist campaign responsible for the bloody 1898 coup in Wilmington was so successful that it became a blueprint for other states throughout the South that would follow suit and use similar violent, 
fraudulent and oppressive tactics to disenfranchise Blacks in what became known as the Jim Crow South. Season three will also explore the early 20th century community of Durham's Black Wall Street. As I've mentioned previously on this podcast, Tulsa, Oklahoma was not the only so-called Black Wall Street in America. Successful Black businesses lined Durham's Paris Street in the early 1900s, the equivalent of an enterprise zone in today's terms, fueling the economic growth of much of the city's Black population. The robust four-Black business district showcased the dogged tenacity, intellect, and industrious nature of Black business owners in the Bull City. Eventually, Durham's national reputation for Black entrepreneurship earned it the nickname Black Wall Street. Acclaimed author W.E.B. Du Bois visited Durham in 1912. The city's unique position as a mecca of Black business and talent led him to record his observations about the prosperous city that year in an article titled, The Upbuilding of Black Durham, The Success of the Negroes and Their Value to a Tolerant and Helpful Southern City. Du Bois praised Durham's Black middle class and the city's exceptional degree of successful Black business owners. He lauded the frugality of Durham's Black population, noting that they own, quote, a half million dollars worth of property, end quote, though what he described as their, quote, pretty and well-equipped homes, end quote, displayed, quote, no evidence of luxury, end quote. Du Bois observed the booming manufacturing sector and other service-based enterprises, grocery stores, drug stores, barbershops, a bank, quote, a shoe store, a haberdashery, and an undertaking establishment, end quote. He described factories that produced, quote, mattresses, hoisery, brick, iron articles, and dressed lumber. Du Bois attributed much of the city's success, particularly the success of its Black population, to the tolerance displayed by Durham's white population. Quote, I consider the greatest factor in Durham's development, Du Bois writes, quote, the disposition of the mass of ordinary white citizens of Durham to say, hands off, give them a chance, don't interfere, end quote. Urban renewal in the 1960s had a devastating impact on Durham's Black business community, though by that time, its heyday had passed. Despite being admired as a beacon of the Jim Crow South by the Ku Klux Klan and the like for the stronghold white supremacy held over the state, the Black experience in North Carolina was not one of just brutality and suffering. And despite the pride of once flourishing Black North Carolinian communities such as Durham, Princeville, and James City, as we saw with the 1898 Wilmington Massacre and coup, the Black experience in North Carolina was not just one of advancement or success. Like many places in this country, the Black experience in North Carolina is more complicated than that. However, what happened in the communities we'll explore in Season 3 was very much a result of what was happening in the state and the region at the time. For now, let's turn our attention back to the centennial events marking the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Next, you're going to hear pieces of a ceremony dedicating a prayer wall outside of the historic Vernon AME Church. While this was a rainy day, the rain stopped just long enough for the dedication to take place and started again as soon as the dedication was over. The prayer wall was designed to be a place for prayer and racial healing accessible to anyone in the community. Quote, Historic Vernon African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded in 1905. 
It is the only standing Black-owned structure from the historic Black Wall Street era and the only edifice that remains from the worst race massacre in American history, end quote, according to the church. In fact, the basement at Vernon AME Church was the last remaining structure along Black Wall Street after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. The church is located in North Tulsa, the predominantly Black neighborhood of Tulsa, which is where Black Wall Street is located. During this ceremony, church leaders dedicated one of those basement walls as a prayer wall outside of the church. A diverse group of people from various backgrounds prayed and reflected with spiritual leaders from different faiths, including Jewish, Christian, and Buddhist faith leaders, during the ceremony. The event was led and presided over by Pastor Reverend Dr. Robert R. A. Turner. Bishop and activist William Barber came in from North Carolina to speak, as well as lawmakers from Delaware and California. A representative from the Cherokee Nation was also among the speakers. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson addressed the crowd after his daughter introduced him with a beautiful song. And we want everybody to know the space that has the wood planks in it. You can actually put prayers on the inside of it. But Vernon AME remains. The ground floor gutted in 1921 did not remain gutted forever. This building arose because a determined congregation refused to be erased, refused to be denied, refused to be told that it had no place in Greenwood. This church refused to sell itself to others with different ideas about what it was supposed to be. And now it has a wall to focus the prayers of all people to serve as a place to speak truth and righteousness, to concentrate our thoughts about love and respect, to act as a container for hope and restoration. If my community has a message this morning, it's to bless the congregation of Vernon AME, to bless its pastor, Dr. Robert Turner, and to say that however long it takes, this city will reward ambition and endurance. Vernon has a story of its own to write. It has its chairs, its windows, its book of redemption. And now it has a wall of prayer to serve our city as a place of gathering, as a place where we can write our future, a place to feel the power of rebuilding. A wall of prayer is a shining achievement and it will serve our community for generations. And so I give you this, the voice of the psalmist and the permission of the sages. The words of Torah are the beginning of truth, intended to serve the needs of the moment, even if they must be adjusted for the purpose. This 
is the very gateway of the Lord, the victorious shall enter this way. Even ma'asu hamashchitim hayita l'rosh pina, the stone that the, that the destroyers once brought down has become a cornerstone in chief. Me'et Adonai hayita zot hiniflat be'enenu. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. Zehayom asa Adonai nagila v'nismecha vo. This is the day that Adonai the Lord has made. Let us exult together and rejoice. And now I hope you will let me sing my praise. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Shehechayanu vikimanu vehigianu lazman haze. Amen. Ah, 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 Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of the universe, who kept us alive and sustained us and enabled us to reach this day. Amen. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. explicitly stated that to resolve deeply rooted social problems, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. To bring about this revolution of values, Dr. King asserted that a rapid shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society is essential. He also pointed out that giving priority to things over people gives rise to a cold-hearted, ruthless society that dehumanizes people. This transformation of values from things to people is the first step toward peace. The struggle for social justice, the struggle to win true freedom and equality is a major challenge and goal for all of humanity. As long as people are discriminated against and oppressed and treated contemptuously anywhere in the world, we cannot rest. We must continue to seek a more perfect solidarity for all humankind. As Dr. King stated, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. From this moment forward, let's advance together with the spirit of humanism. Let's reaffirm our commitment to justice. Let's make reparations. Let us resolve to be a powerful source of hope in our communities, and let's pray for the health and safety and protection of all of our treasured friends, most especially on this sacred day, the survivors and the descendants of the Greenwood Massacre. Every single one of us, without exception, can and must be the protagonists to enable America to become a society of beauty, unity, and peace. It starts with each of us. So we invite you to join us all in chanting, Nam Myoho 
Renge Kyo. Can everybody say Nam? Myoho? Renge Kyo. This means respect for the mystic or unexplainable law of cause and effect through sound. So by chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, we bring forth our inner wisdom, compassion, and courage, or our inner Buddha nature, and raise our own life state or condition and make a positive cause in this world that will have lasting and positive effects through society. I am going to hand the mic over now to Kavitra Kavya, who will lead us in chanting. Never 
yellow, brown, black, and white. They're all precious to God's sight. Everybody is somebody. I am somebody. I am somebody. I am somebody. Respect me. Protect me. Never neglect me. We are God's children. We'll not give up. We'll not give out. We'll not surrender. We'll keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. A, a new Wall Street. A new Greenwood Avenue. A new Tulsa. A new Oklahoma. A new America. This land is our land. Light will cast away darkness. Light will cast away darkness. We are the light. Dogs must sleep. Racism must sleep. Gender bias must sleep. We have the power. We have the faith. God has the power. See us through. Nothing too hard for God. Only the bitches have the power to forgive and therefore redeem. They don't have the power to forgive. The height of arrogance is to forgive yourself for something you committed against some else. It's no one who commits a sin, powers to forgive his own sin. We're the people have the power to forgive. Because of all forgiveness, if you're repentant, then contrite, admit their own, seek redemption. Emmett Till was killed some years ago, 1955. Woman who lied on him on her deathbed said to say, I, I made a mistake. Emmett Till's mother had to forgive her. Little going to hell blind. See, only, only the victims the power to forgive, power to redeem, hunger and suffering, to be redemptive, for the power to give and redeem. For the whole redemption, however must ask for redemption, seek a contrite heart. There, there are some, we are the we're proud successes presented to our co-parents who do lives. But there are those who Giants kill, but their sons keep coming. This legislation today, the descendants of those who engage in wrong, those who seek to limit the vote, they're, they're, they're descendants of, of that. Those who seek to deny women the rights to vote, equality. We, the people of light, fight children of darkness. We seek renewal today, revival, and redemption. God's grace shines upon us today from Tulsa and our lives. We need second reconstruction to build the bank. We need second reconstruction. Now, when the World War II and the Marshall Plan had been bombed, what made the Marshall Plan significant was not the size of the 50 year loans, 2% government secured. 50 loans, 200 government secured. That bank, the light, people of Appalachia, Salsa, New York, 
Mississippi, the whole nation can grow through its development for all that is possible for a few. I am somebody. I am somebody. I am, somebody. I am God's child. I am God's child. I will not surrender. I will not surrender. I will not bow down. Stand up. Fight back. Stand up. Fight back. Love. Love matters. Love matters. Hope matters. Healing matters. Keep hope alive. The Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. The Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. So thankful. So thankful. So thankful. Before this land was Vernon's, it belonged to the Cherokee Nation. We must tell the truth. We, we have it today, but this land belongs to the Cherokee Nation. And to pay respect to those who had that land taken from them, Cherokee and the freedmen, that's right. That's and Creed. Call the road. Choctaw, Call the road. Chickasee, Creed, Seminole, Blackfeet. Call the role of those who are the indigenous Americans who had that land brutally taken. We have a representative from the Cherokee Nation here that will give remarks. Then we will have our closing song and we ask all the clergy to come. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Turner. I'm honored to be here and asked to talk. Um, first and foremost, I want to thank any veterans. Let's give a hand to any veterans in this group. I'm honored to be in the presence of Mr. Jackson. Great, great spirit here. Bishop Conderlay, he is here. He's a friend of my community. Um, we also have our delegate to Congress from Cherokee Nation, Kim Teehee. So a little about me, I want to say first of all, we have a lot of people from outside of town here. And I want to welcome you because you're standing on the Cherokee Nation Reservation today. And we welcome you. We talk about the fight between black and the Tulsa race massacre and reparations. Natives are also standing with you because if you remember, this is not our ancestral lands. We were forcibly removed to come here. And here we are. And you've heard these people speak. I have Cherokee in me. I have Creek in me. We are freedmen. Cherokee Nation recently had their constitution signed, except the freedmen. And we are now, they are no longer freedmen. They are citizens of the Cherokee Nation. So we, our leaders in this community, our Chief Hoskin, you've heard him speak, wonderful speaker. He's very progressive, and we look at his leadership. If you watch him, we're changing the environment. 
health, education. We're putting money into our communities. North Tulsa is Cherokee Nation. And we are here, if you look around, we accept everybody, whether it was the vaccines, the food distributions. We didn't say just for Cherokees, because we're a community. So I'm not gonna stay here long, we've been here a while, but I do wanna mention something that's very important. We talked about legislation. Last night I received a resolution that the city of Tulsa Council have put forward and they pulled me in and talked to me. They now have a resolution to start the talks about reparations and what happened here a hundred years ago. In the future, these are gonna be hard talks. People aren't gonna wanna talk about it. But as your leader in Cherokee Nation, for your people, I'll be your voice. Reach out to me because I'll speak it up. I'll tell them how it goes, and we'll have those hard discussions. A lot of people and families talk about agreeing and disagreeing, but you still love one another when it's over. So we will have those talks. Mr. Turner, Dr. Turner, if you remember, he's been out here fighting for that. And I think the voice of North Tulsa and the Tulsa Race Massacre over the last 100 years has now been heard. And now that burden, they have to recognize that. They have to acknowledge that. And they have to own it. Let us have a closing prayer. Dear God, we praise you. We ask that you bless this wall. Allow those who come and touch it to feel your presence. Every faith, every creature, every child to know your power. This day and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies Of liberty Let our rejoicing Skies. Let us resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song. Full of the hope that the present has taught us Facing the rising sun of our new day begun Let us march on till victory is won
In season one of this podcast, I interviewed Greg Taylor, a longtime resident of Tulsa, a former preacher, as well as a student who's obtaining his doctorate in theology. Greg is also the founder of 1256, which is an initiative spearheaded by a collective of builders, bankers, realtors, and tradespeople who intend to build 1,256 affordable housing units or houses in North Tulsa, the same number of homes that were burned during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Greg sees this as a form of reparations through economic development. While speaking to Greg and his brother outside of the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge in Deep Greenwood, we saw Mr. Bobby Eaton Sr. Mr. Eaton is a longtime staple of Greenwood, affectionately known by some as Papa E. Mr. Eaton is also an activist who lived through Black Wall Street's resurgence after it was rebuilt following the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre once again becoming a prosperous community of African-Americans. Much of the media coverage of Tulsa focuses on the massacre, though little is often mentioned of its period of rebirth and growth that lasted into the 1960s. Greg and Mr. Eaton began an intriguing conversation, so I decided to record the two men from two very different worlds who'd come together at such a pivotal moment in time. Greg, a white man, trying to reconcile the reality of racism and his place in this world, and Mr. Eaton, a Black man whose own experiences with racism have colored so much of his life and inspires him to keep fighting for equal rights in a world that has often made him feel as if there is no place for him or people who look like him in it. places in North Tulsa, right? There are only two nightclubs in North Tulsa, okay? They're just not getting a grocery store. You know, who provides people with life? But look what has happened over the years that what could have been a store was torn down, made something else. So you go out of your community to do everything that you need. That does not build a community. That keeps one stagnated. So that's why I say it will remain kind of the same until there are measurable progress made. But for the most part, so when you hear Mr. Uh, Greg Taylor talk about he wants to build 1,256 houses, the number mm -hmm. of houses that mm -hmm. were burned down during the Tulsa mm -hmm. Race Massacre. Is this something you've heard before? You, you mentioned that other people are building houses now. Is this something you think is even feasible with all the attention that's being paid to the Oh, community? it's feasible, yes. I, I know it's feasible. It will be, I guess, too, contingent upon the income of the people who purchase these houses. I make an effort to purchase them without been a disaster three to four years before foreclosure takes place. So with the 
income, it has not grown greatly. Most people that are African Americans that make pretty good, have pretty good income, either live up in Gilcrease Hills or have moved to the south port of Tulsa. Yeah, this is definitely an issue that we've been looking at. Appraisal values is one issue. Banks can come in and they can do an appraisal within five-mile radius. They can choose to go any direction they want. And so if they're only giving appraisals in North Tulsa, that's not fair. And so that's something we point out to banks, and we work against that kind of redlining. 1256 is building a coalition of bankers, realtors, builders, so that it's not just one builder. We're trying to work with black-owned businesses, subcontractors. And so it's all of the community working together. The black community has rebuilt Greenwood on its own without white people helping. I'm white. Um, and so I know there's been a lot of skepticism over the years about white people, quote, helping. And so I'm not here to help. I'm here to walk alongside and, and be a part of something that would help repair. Because there's no real repentance or acknowledgement without reparation for the sins or the massacre of the past. And so we believe that this building of homes is a kind of repair. It's not that we're giving homes away. We are working alongside businesses that will be built as we build homes. Those contracting businesses will grow as well. We're trying to raise $12.56 million over the next 10 years to pay $10,000 in reparations for each home, new or rehabbed home, for a black family in Tulsa, anywhere in Tulsa, not just North Tulsa. And that's a private reparation effort. We don't want to get in the way of the, the public effort or the, actual, the, the efforts of the survivors, the, the legal case against the city, by Mother Randall, Mother Fletcher, and Van Ellis. That's, that's going to go on. But this will be something that can reach to individual families. It's reparation that can be direct and paid in a a down payment assistance. It could be paid in rehabbing a home, um, someone who is a descendant of the massacre. And so that kind of reparation is a small part of reparations. It needs to be a larger complicity. The, The city was complicit. County was complicit. The, the police chief gave guns to white men, deputized them to come into Greenwood and kill. The county, the sheriff, was also complicit. The state sent National Guard troops to take prisoners, bring them to the convention center in McNulty Park. They were complicit. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first part of reparations. Who's responsible? The state, the county, and the city have never paid reparations. They prevented calling it a riot, prevented any insurance claims from ever being paid to businesses and and homeowners. And so the uh, complicity of the city, I think, is really an important piece of that. America believes in reparations. That's another thing, is reparations brings up a controversy because people um, say, well, that's a non-starter. And America does believe in reparations. America gave more than a billion dollars to Native Americans, more than a billion dollars to Japanese Americans. America believes in reparations. They just don't believe in, as Reverend Turner at AME Church says, they just don't believe in reparations for black people. And so we want to continue pushing for the private reparations, but also at the same time reparations on a public level. 
And finally, Mr. Eaton, um, you know, you talked about sort of how things have gotten worse in some respects over the years. Outside, I asked you, why do you stay here? You mentioned you have enough money to leave and, and go away and live somewhere else. Why do you remain? You mentioned being committed. What does that commitment look like to you? Being committed is... Very heartbreaking. Got to know that to begin with, because so much takes place that you're aware that shouldn't take place, but you are powerless to impact it because it is being directed by what they call the family fathers, mothers. You know, pull the purse strings. that you were the first black person in Tulsa to be thrown in jail trying to protest these sort of issues? Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether you ever heard of Clara Looper in Oklahoma City. Hell of a woman. School teacher. I was a member of CORE. You ever heard of CORE? Congress of Racial Equality. We were having a parade in Tulsa down Main Street. Clara Lupa met us around Port and Maine with two busloads of youngsters from Oklahoma City to join that parade. I understand I said school buses. They got off, we went down to Boulder Park. Reverend Ben H. Hill spoke to the people there, and the kids from Oklahoma City said, well, you know, we got up early to come over here. Where can we go eat? And they chose Borden's Cafeteria to eat because that was the closest eatery to the black community, but they didn't want black folk in there eating. So we did, we chose that and went in and they would not serve us and they called the police. And the police came and said, well, we cannot arrest them. You will have to tell them that they're under arrest. And that's what they did. I was the oldest one in that parade. So they took me first. They put me in jail and let the rest come out on their own recognizance. How old were you? Mm, about 30, about 35. What year was that? You're asking a whole lot of me, do <laughs> 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 uh, What decade? <laughs> that was about, in the, I can tell you about what years it was in. Roughly about 1962 or three, because it was not too far after that when Lyndon Bain Johnson passed his bill where it was against the law to discriminate on race, color, creed, national origin, and so forth. 
and places of public accommodation. It was in within that time. Well, you had mentioned Mr. Johnson. They, he did a commission around that time, and you told me a little bit outside. What was the conclusion of that commission of the biggest problem in the United States in the 60s? White racism. White supremacy. Um, Mr. Eaton, one of the things that I've been trying to do in my life over the last few years is to come to grips with how white supremacy affects all white people in America. Now we each have to grow to a place of understanding that we have get, been given benefits and been taught things about life and about others that are wrong. And they have made other people suffer. And so I want to say I'm sorry for the things that you've mentioned today and things that you haven't even mentioned. Going back to the race massacre and the long-term 100-year impact on Tulsa, um, the dividing of the expressway that broke Greenwood apart again. And I'm not an official part of Tulsa, but I'm white. I look like those people that came across Archer and Greenwood and, and attacked Greenwood. And for those things, I'm sorry, but the way that I try to approach being sorry is to try to do something different from what was done in the past. My dad passed last year. My brother's with me. Both of my brothers and, and some others are in a coalition trying to do what we can to reverse some of the sins of the past and also just the inequities and discrimination in housing, redlining. To me, I think it's going to take a lot of friendships like you and I and your sons. You, we're sitting in one of your son's... Uh, he part owns a, a business that we're sitting in right, right now, the, the right. Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge. And, yeah, that's uh, correct. So I've I've made friends with your sons before I got to meet you, and I'm I'm just honored to meet you and and uh, God bless you in in your life. And if there's ever anything I can do to to serve and and uh, be a friend to you in, in the future, please don't hesitate I'm open to call. For that. I'm open and I'm sincere. If I was not, I would tell you straight up. I don't jive about that. Thank you. While in Tulsa, I went on a brief tour of Black Wall Street with a tour guide named Cody Ransom. On top of being part owner, he is also the media and content manager for the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge, located on the historic Greenwood Avenue. During our tour, I realized how much insight he had after deeply reflecting upon the events of 1921 and the impact they had had on the place he calls home. This is part of our conversation. Alright, so it's the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge in historic Greenwood, Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, it's basically where we go, we go from coffee to culture. Um, I do tours out of here, we display local artwork, try to help the artists sell it. 
um, but also small business consultant. And it kind of has like that barbershop and hair salon feel. Um, we do everything from teas to made-to-order food, uh, fraps, stuff like that as well. How'd you become a part owner here? Uh, really just um, following, following my spirit. Uh, I was down here on Greenwood all the time. Uh, I started coming in here. The first person I met in here was uh, Guy Troop, which was one of the owners. And I noticed that this man literally did everything. So he was always remodeling or moving something or, you know, helping somebody. I saw him meet with so many people um, and never charged anybody. So then one day I just asked him, like, hey, you need help with anything? And he was like, nah, but if I do, I'll let you know. I was like, okay. And then I just kept coming back and just kind of sitting in here talking to people. And then one day he, uh, Dwight Eaton, and then uh, Missy Vetroop, guy's wife, were just like, hey, bro, you want to own it? And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. So um, they just started training me up on things that I needed to do um, and things I needed to know in order to be a business owner. And so now here I am. So. And so they kind of brought you into the fold. So almost that, that spirit that of community that, you know, we talk about when we talk about Greenwood and yeah. Black Wall Street. They sort of um, extended that to you. For sure. Um, we always equated to following the model of O.W. Gurley. Uh, he did that as well. Um, a lot of people that had ideas of businesses they wanted to do uh, didn't have the money to start them, and so he would help finance them and get them started. Um, this community was built off barter and trade, you know, money as well, but barter and trade meant a lot. Your word meant a lot, knowing that the person next to you um, had your best interest in heart, too. Um, this wasn't a capitalistic place. It was, you know, I can still feed my family without starving yours. And knowing that we're able to do that. Um, and then coffee is kind of the draw to get you in the door. Um, but it's the culture we create that gets people to stay stay and come back. So, so they helped you become a business owner. Yeah. And started you on your path to entrepreneurship. Yes. And now you teach uh, kids in the community, the same thing, correct? Yes, yes. How so? Um, I start by, I'm a basketball trainer, youth basketball trainer. So um, I use basketball as kind of, again, the draw to get them in. And then I teach them how to, um, how the NCAA is going to monetize the name, how the name, image, and likeness means a lot. Um, I find out what they like to do outside of sport because a lot of times uh, I was an athlete too. And I know that I identified as an athlete. So when I got hurt and was no longer an athlete, you kind of feel lost, like you don't know yourself, you don't know what you're capable of because you always said that this is what you are. So um, a lot of kids, especially in North Tulsa, but in uh, most black communities, kids don't know it's possible for them to even have a, have a business of their own at nine years old or at 10 years old. So teaching them that early, taking what they like to do and teaching them ways to make money it's kind of how I pay my rent, technically, you know what I mean? So um, being able to give that to the kids and then help cultivate those businesses, uh, the goal is to get it up to where I can do at least 50 kids a quarter. And so if I can pump out 50 a quarter, get 200 in a year, then 10 years I should be done or it shouldn't be enough businesses, you know, uh, shouldn't be anything left to start if I can do that. So um, the goal is if when you see a, a, a Walmart, for Walmart to have an entire black-owned section um, that came right here from Greenwood, kids of Greenwood, um, being able to have 
everything from toilet tissue to soda to juices to breads to you know bicycles that they build I want them to be able to do all of it um oftentimes we we get driven into t-shirts and chicken wings so showing them that we can do something else um but if I mean if that's your passion that's your passion but knowing that that's not everybody's passion so being able to unlock that in a kid um especially knowing that our school system here isn't very good so um, the more education they get on the back end, the better. Perfect transition because I was just about to ask you about the conversation we had earlier. We were talking about today is, um, you know, the second half of the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Mm. And I don't know if you were there earlier. I was at the Greenwood Rising dedication ceremony. And uh, they had children from the Booker T. Washington chorus. And it was a you know, mixed group of kids, black and white and other. And, you know, there was a time where Booker T. Washington used to be all black. But you were telling me that it's no longer that way. In fact, you're saying that very few black children attend Booker T. Washington or George Washington Carver. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Um, Number one, when integration came, um, that school, Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver, um, they had some of the highest test scores in the state and so it's basically a private school education in a public school system and so knowing that that's the best schools then of course the black kids can't be the ones that go there they have to get bused to lesser schools even though they stay right next door to Booker T. Washington or George Washington Carver so uh, by implementing a grade point average and uh, actually checks and balances in a system that you have to qualify to go to these public schools, even though they're not private schools. You still have to qualify. Well, knowing that these kids, before they make it into middle school, they have to go through elementary. And if this elementary isn't, you know, one of the high end, of course, the kids that live in Jinx or go to Holland Hall, Casha Hall, Monte Casino, those kids are getting private school education in elementary. So, of course, they will test higher. And then these kids are getting. Uh, public school education that isn't as good, so they may not test as high. So the ones you do see make it into Booker T or Carver, usually I'd say seven times out of ten are athletes um, because they need them for sports. Uh, Booker T Washington High School football-wise is a powerhouse, but it's a tiny school compared to the people they have to compete against. Um, and that's because the some of the most elite athletes come out of North Tulsa. But unfortunately, um, not all of them are scholars according to the grade point average. So they get shipped to schools that you know they'll fail at because those schools don't, you know, they don't teach as well. Not necessarily on the teachers, but sometimes it's just the, the environment, the core. Uh, some of these kids that never left North Tulsa until they get bused somewhere else. But I can only imagine what it would be like to grow up next door to a school known for so much greatness and know that when I become of age, I, I can't go there. I have to go somewhere else. And then knowing that that went from a historically black school um, that a lot of prominent black people came from, um, and to know that these kids' parents and grandparents may have went there, and they won't get that opportunity. Um, we hear it often, you know, that the kids follow and go to their parents' alma mater, where these kids don't even have that as a choice. Um, and that's just kind of tells you the system and climate of Tulsa, really. 
So that makes your job a little harder trying to help educate children outside of schools and teach them a better way, a more productive way, a more lucrative way, because a lot of them, according to you, are not getting a quality education or even a basic education that would help them get into a school like a Booker T. Washington or George Washington Carver. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely tough because you're you're fighting... Number one, you're fighting bad habits. You're fighting outside influence from uh, some of the neighborhoods these kids live in. And then knowing that some of them, school just doesn't motivate them. Um, some of them don't feel pushed. Some feel like they're pushed too hard. And so having to try to find, take these kids that are traumatized and don't even know it, but try to take them and, and build something out of it, um, being able to connect with them. Um, I will say when I was in school, it's very rare that I had a black teacher. So just being able to look at the teacher and identify with a teacher is, you know, it means a lot to a lot of kids. And knowing that, you know, one of the opportunities you may have had was used to be a lot of black teachers at Booker T. Um, but when you're bused to Memorial or Nathan Hill or East Central, these are predominantly white sides of town. So the teachers will most likely be white as well. So... Um, so not having that that mental connection to know like oh somebody that looks like me did this and is doing it and is teaching me and can understand how I think you know where I come from that's why in here we use coffee as kind of the draw the name Liquid Lounge of course it speaks to the liquids that we sell but also teaching people to be more liquid and maneuverable when it comes to doing what they do um, money is often referred to as liquid so. Um, that's kind of a play on words, but that's kind of what we use it for. Did you um, go to Booker T? Or I didn't, actually. Uh, even though I grew up, uh, I was over in North Tulsa as well. Uh, I ended up going to almost every school except Booker T. Uh, East Central, Memorial, Nathan Hill. I was all over the place. Um, but Booker T was just one that I never even thought I could get into Booker T. I was an intelligent kid. Um... High grade point average. I just I had attitude issues, so I knew that I, Booker T just was kind of out of the cards for me. But a lot of my friends did go there. Um, but again, the majority of my friends that went to Booker T were elite athletes. One hundred years to the day after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, excavation crews resumed efforts to identify potential mass graves at Oak Lawn Cemetery in Tulsa on Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. Here's an excerpt from a Tulsa World article about the project by author and journalist Randy Crabiel, whom I interviewed in season one of this podcast. It's dated June 25th, 2021. Quote, Archaeological work ended Friday at Oaklawn Cemetery with those searching for unmarked burials from Tulsa's 1921 race massacre, reporting the exhumation of 19 sets of remains, one of which showed obvious signs of trauma. That set of a black male bore the marks of multiple bullet wounds. The remains were found among a row of children's graves, but buried much deeper, said state archaeologist Carrie Stackelbeck. 
Forensic anthropologist Phoebe Stubblefield said she has finished examining about half the remains and will finish examining the second half, including those with the bullet wounds in the coming days. Stubblefield said at least one bullet was found with the remains and bullet damage is apparent to the head and arm. This latest attempt to find burials from the race massacre did not uncover the mass graves some expected, and many believe exist somewhere in the Tulsa area, but it does seem likely to verify the location of the so-called, quote, original 18, end quote, 18 African-Americans reported buried in an unspecified section of Oaklawn Cemetery in the days following the May 31st to June 1st, 1921 massacre, quote, They're in there, end quote, said Stubblefield. Quote, I trust the documentation that indicates at least the original 18 are in there, end quote. Stubblefield said the southwest section of the cemetery where the researchers have been working, identified as Black Potter's Field, was carefully laid out, but the lack of documentation and headstones created an impression of emptiness. Quote, it's probably wall-to-wall caskets, end quote, Stubblefield said. Quote, we didn't hit any blank spots in our excavations. Somebody planned and organized that cemetery and knew what they were doing, but we don't have any record, end quote. It's likely that some of the exhumed remains, which include five juveniles and at least two women, were not connected to the massacre. In all, 35 burials were identified, but it was decided exhuming all of the remains was unnecessary. Part of that decision was based on the discovery that women and children were, without exception, buried in better coffins than the men in the section excavated. Because the team was looking primarily for men buried in cheap coffins, it concentrated on that grouping. Stubblefield said DNA extraction will be attempted with at least some of the remains, but that many of the bodies are in very poor condition. The number killed in the 1921 massacre has been disputed for the past century. A search of death certificates about 20 years ago identified 37 connected to the massacre, but reports of many more deaths surfaced in the immediate aftermath, with estimates ranging from 50 to 500, end quote. Now, the following is an excerpt from a recent Washington Post article about developments since the exhumation by Deneen Brown, dated August 3rd, 2021. Quote, the bodies of 19 people exhumed from a mass grave that may be connected to the 1921 Tulsa race massacre were reinterred Friday, despite objections from some descendants. The reburial at the city-owned Oaklawn Cemetery sparked an angry protest from some members of the Tulsa Mass Graves Public Oversight Committee, which is charged with overseeing the search for mass graves connected to one of the worst episodes of racial violence in American history. The committee voted last week to delay reburial until the city delivers its report on the mass grave, where the skeletal remains of a Black man with multiple gunshot wounds to his head and shoulder were among those discovered in June. But the city ignored the vote, said Chief Eganwil Amusan, a committee member and massacre victim descendant who accused officials of, quote, a cover up, end quote. On Friday, descendants filed a motion requesting a judge grant a temporary restraining order to prevent the city from reburying the remains. By then, though, the remains were already reinterred. 
Michelle Brooks, a spokeswoman for Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum, said the city was required to rebury the remains to meet permit requirements obtained before the June excavation began. The permit required the city to reinter the remains after the, quote, on-site forensic analysis, documentation, and DNA sampling were complete, end quote, Brooks said. Tulsa also had to, quote, abide by the permit requirements that were filed with the Oklahoma State Department of Health and the Tulsa County District Attorney's Office, requiring the remains to be temporarily interred at Oakland Cemetery, end quote, Brooks said. Scientists are expected to report their findings from the excavation this fall when they will make recommendations for the next steps in the investigation, end quote. I interviewed some of the researchers leading the excavation efforts during season one of this podcast more than a year ago, including Dr. Scott Ellsworth, writer, historian, and University of Michigan, Afro-American and African Studies professor. Dr. Ellsworth has authored four books, including Death in a Promised Land, described as the first comprehensive history of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, as well as The Groundbreaking, in which Dr. Ellsworth returns to the Tulsa Massacre and its legacy. During season one, I also interviewed Dr. Alicia Adewale, a University of Tulsa anthropology associate professor who's also helping to lead excavation efforts. In season one, you'll also hear from Kevin Ross, the son of former state representative Don Ross, who spearheaded efforts to start the commission that studied the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. I also caught up with Kevin a year later at Oakland Cemetery during my trip to Tulsa. take many weeks. There are osteologists, forensic scientists, archaeologists who will attempt to, you can, the boat, the, the remains are very fragile. We'll have to determine whether they're massacre victims. That'll happen first. But they can determine age, gender, racial background, cause of death. And uh, we will, the plan is to extract DNA to see if we can identify these folks. And then, um, you know, eventually they will be reburied with honor. So this is not somebody's academic study. These are all murder victims who, in my mind, were thrown away while their loved ones were all being held under armed detention throughout internment camps in the city. Uh, their loved ones never found out what happened to their father, their brother, their son, or even where they were buried. So this is a, an attempt to bring these people back home. Yesterday was the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. As is today. As is today. For somebody who has followed this for so long, how do you feel emotionally coming to this milestone? Well, you know, obviously it's, you know, it's very important. When we, you know, in, in October when we saw two coffins and then two more and two more, and it was obvious what we found, um, you know, I had a real mix of emotions. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I was happy that we were successful. It's been a long time. A lot of people, it was the survivors who asked me to do this in 1998 to begin with. But it was also very sobering. There you're looking at, you know, uh, coffins that, that likely contain the remains of murder victims. This is very real, very sobering. But I, I have to tell you, in all honesty, I thought of survivors like Debbie D. Williams, George Monroe, Mabel Little, Eldoris Bacondici, 
others that I've known off and on for 45 years and how pleased they would be. So it's very, you know, it's, it's just a swirl of emotions. And you said at least a dozen coffins. We found at least a dozen coffins. We don't know if there are more underneath. We don't know the extent of this. But, you know, my guess, but we don't know this, my guess that these are part of these 18 that we know are here. But, you know, I, I firmly believe that there are at least three other locations in town where massacre victims are buried in unmarked graves. Whether we'll be able to find that or not remains to be seen. This is, this is hard work. And, uh, you know, you can, you can bury 100 people in a 10-foot by 10-foot square, and you have to have a place that you can point to. So we'll, you know, we'll see. You know, um, Dr. Ellsworth, I was talking to somebody when I was coming here and, and they were asking about the excavation and they said, what's the point? Why are they doing this? So for people who don't know much about this, can you tell them why this is important? Well, these are, um, you know, these are, these are murder victims and they're, they're the remains of people uh, who were killed during the worst single incident of racial violence in American history. Um, they were let down. Uh, you know, they and their families were let down by the city, by the state, by the federal government, uh, by everyone. And, um, you know, this is a, a maybe a chance to reunite families with the remains of their loved ones. But also it's to honor, you know, these people here. They, you know, if this is done the way I hope it is, uh, hopefully they'll be reinterred in Greenwood. But if we have an appropriate memorial, in my mind, it would be something akin to the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. These these people, these remains, this shrine will become a shrine not just to victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre, but to the victims of racist violence in America since 1619, uh, whose, uh, whose remains lie in graves that we'll never find. So the last time I interviewed you was a year ago and you were getting ready to start this process. You've come a long way. How does it feel? It feels great to be out here. Uh, there's actually two different archaeology projects happening. So when we last spoke, I was talking to, talking to you about my map and historical trauma and Tulsa project. And that's actually a whole separate thing for the social grass graves. But having two concurrently running archaeology projects is really exciting in a city this size. Uh, and so it's... Uh, it's really sort of fulfilling to have both of these happening right now on site and all of this is happening under the watch of a lot of eyes but we thank we have a lot of community members here as well and so just tell me about your role in this whole process so i'm an archaeologist and i specialize in african national archaeology and with my role i'm primarily here both as a person who is representative of our community but also representative of a lot of the expertise and training that's been happening and we are having we're actually seeing a lot of things that we're going to be uncovering from last time so a lot of the things that we're doing right now is to really sort of leave off from where we started i can't believe we started this but 2018 I think, yeah. It's for the actual commission to start. I can't believe that we, it's already 2021. We had some good plans laid out. And uh, 
I'm just overwhelmed right now, to be honest with you. You're a descendant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your family has been involved in telling this story and right. trying to tell it when nobody else wanted to talk about it. Right. So now that the world is watching, how does it feel that people are finally acknowledging the extent and the magnitude of what happened? Do your own research. You know, quit taking rumors. And that's what this project is about. It's about dispelling what's a rumor, what's a lie, and search for the truth. And we're at this point now that we've got to search for the truth now. If not, uh, we just keep the circle of hate over and over again. Why do you think this is important? Some people are like, well, what's the point? What, what would you tell people like that? We need to communicate. We need to communicate. We need to talk things out. If we don't talk things out, we'll keep on having the same problem over and over again. Especially with my folks. I hope they recognize that we are actually reliving a history called the Willie Lynch that separate us even when we go back to slaves. And so here we are yet to learn. I'm hoping that we will learn from our history. The only way you can do it is that we start learning now. We got to start now. If not, keep on doing the same old thing. Organizers had planned a major event to commemorate the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre that was to be nationally televised. The Remember and Rise event was scheduled in Tulsa on Memorial Day, a Monday. Stacey Abrams, known for her efforts to secure voting rights for all, was supposed to deliver a keynote address. Musician John Legend was supposed to perform. Suddenly, the event was canceled just a few days before it was set to take place. It was later revealed that an impasse over payments to three survivors had caused a breakdown in negotiations about the survivors' attendance. It was a shocking turn of events given the highly publicized nature of the commemorative events, especially the canceled Remember and Rise event, which was expected to capture the attention of people from across the globe. Nevertheless, organizers continued with plans to hold a ceremony that Wednesday to dedicate the Greenwood Rising Black Wall Street History Center, located in the heart of the Greenwood District at Greenwood and Archer Avenues. However, some critics of the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission let their opposition be known while protesting the Greenwood Rising ceremony.
Nevertheless, the museum tells the story of Black Wall Street before, during, and after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Dozens of descendants of race massacre survivors, various dignitaries and politicians, along with members of the public from near and far were in attendance. The building of the museum was spearheaded by the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, whose leaders also presided over the dedication ceremony. This is a short snippet of some of that ceremony. You'll hear from activist Bobby Eaton, again, also known as Papa E, whom we first heard from earlier in this episode, as well as Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission Project Director Phil Armstrong. You'll also hear Anthony Mason and his band, again, as well as the Booker T. Washington Student Choir. Somebody, regardless of where you are, regardless of what you are doing today, somebody made it possible. You didn't do it on your own. I stand here telling you about history. There was a time when that would be a dangerous thing to do, but somebody made it possible for whatever you are doing today and just remember one thing that which you have gotten so much out of be duty bound to put something back into it thank you
I didn't know nothing about Oklahoma except through Michael McCord's. He talked about Greenwood and how it developed and showed us documentaries and films and showed us a film called The Tulsa Race Massacre, or The Tulsa Race Riot, as it was called back then, a semester in 1991. And so when I moved here in 1997, it was utterly shocking to know that me, an Ohioan, knew more about your history than you had ever learned or ever even heard of, and you born and lived here. And so you have entrusted me with this task, and I am grateful. On Monday, this past Monday, the direct descendants of J.B. Stratford, John Rogers and his family, representatives of the Emerson family, and representatives of the A.J. Smitherman family members who were not able to stay in Tulsa beyond Monday, were able to experience the History Center before they left. They smiled. They laughed. They wept. And then they shook my hand. John Rogers looked me in the eye and said, thank you for honoring our legacy with this beautiful place. That in and of itself was my greatest reward. To know that the many sleepless nights and struggles on both sides of this community, all the hits, all the punches, all the ups and the downs were all worth it. That an entire new generation of children born in 2021, 20 years from now in 2041, will be able to say that they learned all through their public school education the history of black Americans in Oklahoma and the Tulsa Race Massacre.
100 years after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, what is the legacy of Greenwood? What lasting impact did the destruction of Black Wall Street in North Tulsa have on Black Tulsans and the city as a whole 100 years later? Of all the ceremonies, panels, and discussions I attended while commemorating the massacre, I don't think I found an answer to those questions. And honestly, they're probably subjective and depend on who you ask. But I did hear an interesting perspective from my tour guide, Cody, whom we heard from earlier in this episode. Part of the culture at the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge is the tours that you give. That's how I met you. Mm. You gave me a wonderful tour of Black Wall Street. And it was a very enlightening tour, actually. And I learned a lot. Why do you think it's important to give back in that way and to help people understand? I mean, quite honestly, you're a very pessimistic person. Mm. (laughs) You don't have a lot of hope. For this community, Mm. at least in its current state, Mm. but you still give and you still try to educate people in in any way that is within your capacity. Why Mm. why do you do that? Um, I do it because even though I don't have a lot of hope for Tulsa in itself, based on what Tulsa has shown me so far, um, but that hope could change any day. The moment I start seeing what I believe to be real progress, then that, that way of thinking will change. So I'm not... I'm not one of those people that's kind of glued to how I think. Um, I assess it every day. And if tomorrow looks better, then I'll say, okay, I feel better today. Um, But right now, I don't feel that way just because um, I just watch things that happen here. Um, We just had this centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre, and over and over, people mistakenly use the word celebrate versus commemorate. Um, And to me, the the only way to commemorate and pay homage to people is to do what they would have done. And what they would have done on on Black Wall Street was make sure black people were okay. That's what they did here. They bartered, they traded, they worked together, they supported one another. That's not what we get down here. Um, We get it when the cameras show up. Um, But And then seeing so many people come down, it was a lot of people said they were here for Black Wall Street. They were here to see Greenwood. And so I'm often quoted in saying that you can see Greenwood any day from June 2nd to May 30th. But May 31st and June 1st, that was the day of bloodshed and massacre. So when you come on May 31st, that's not coming for Black Wall Street. Those are the two worst days in Black Wall Street's history. So if you're coming for the history of the area, you know, you have 363 other days to really care about it. But on these two days... Um, we should be paying homage to these people. So um, with, with the tours, I do them, and I do them the way I do them and for free because I feel like, number one, the survivors didn't sell me you know, that, that history. I also know that um, the most profitable thing in America is black trauma and black pain. Uh, America gets paid off of it in many forms, whether it's the music we put out or we talk about what we go through and what we grow up in. Uh, the movies that are produced about us that either depict us as slaves or angry people or, you know, just in pain in general, um, all the way down to a massacre that, um, when it was 98 years ago, wasn't really a big deal. 
um, you getting the tour of Black Wall Street, you were able to see, and I was able to point out, all of the stuff that just got here within the last 12 months. So it's been 100 years, and most of the things that are here now were built within the last 12 months. So that tells you if we're going off of history, it'll be another 100 years before we see progress here again. Um, knowing that it, we went from 40 blocks to two buildings, and even those two buildings aren't owned by black people. Um, the very place that black enterprise thrived and was successful, black people don't own it anymore. And we, those of us that are here are forced to pay rent for the rest of the time that we want to be here. So I think that, um, I know you being in New York, things of that nature, Chinatown can be authentically Chinese and nobody has a problem with that. I can go to Chinatown and experience Chinese culture and people love to do that. I can go to Spanish Harlem and experience Spanish culture. I can go to Little Italy and, and feel like I'm an Italian. But when you come to Black Wall Street, you can't get an authentic experience everywhere in Black Wall Street because we don't got it. So I think it's important to always have boots on the ground and somebody that will take the people around, not let money be the reason why people can't learn it. Um, but as I was telling you during the tour, um, there's a reason why people are the way they are here. There's a reason why we're so separated here, partially due to the massacre, then due to urban renewal coming in and tearing it up a second time. But people here are just, they're worn out. Um, they've seen a legacy be built and then the city destroy it, not just some random mob. It was the city appointed officials and deputies did this to this place. Then the second time, it was the city deciding to put a highway through the heart of it after they died, shed blood and tears, and rebuilt it and thrived again to have it ripped from them again. So, you know, most people don't want to burn themselves three times. And so, um, I, like I said, I just think it's important for this coffee shop to be authentic that way. Um, that's why I referenced the barbershop and hair salon field. Uh, in my opinion, the civil rights movement pretty much started in barbershops and in, in hair salons, you know. Uh, Mabel B. Little was a Black Wall Street survivor, but she was a hairdresser turned social activist, you know. So um, Papa Eaton, you know, his dad had a barbershop, and that's where they had their core meetings, the Con Congress of Racial Equality meetings so, during the civil rights movement. So this is kind of like a 2021 version of it, I guess. And you said you believe that was the point of the massacre, wasn't just to destroy uh, the property and everything, the, the wealth that black people had built and acquired. It was to crush their soul and their hope. Yeah, um, materials can always be repurchased. And if you look at the spending power of black people, um, we propel culture here. Whatever we say is popular, and if we spend on it, it's now the popular thing. Um, we we push culture. We push um, we push cool forward. So we'll always be able to get the material. It's the soul that was lost here because it drove division. So that highway is indicative of exactly what happened. There's it's split to where there's this side versus this side. Um, o. W. Gurley and J. B. Stratford were both hotel owners. They didn't. It wasn't a competition. They didn't have that division in between them. 
um, and knowing that O.W. Gurley reached out to Stratford knowing they had the same businesses. He could have called somebody else and told him to do something other than what he was doing, but he was cool with it. The fact that the Williams Theater um, watched the Dixie Theater be built right across the street, and it wasn't wasn't like they said, oh, you can't be here. or They knew they couldn't house everybody, so it was enough for all of us. But what that massacre did is that massacre made people, number one, feel like they weren't safe in their own community, let alone outside of it. Um, it's all similar to some of the crime bills we get. It's all fathers, you know, a lot of black fathers stripped from families. And so when it was time to rebuild these families, there was no male leadership in these households a lot of times. Some of these businessmen, prominent businessmen, left. Stratford went to Chicago. O.W. ended up in California. So the fact that these people, the soul of Greenwood, left. Um, and not to any fault of their own. You know, it would be tough to to see that. But that's why I referenced you, Lula Williams, knowing that she had her theater burned and destroyed, rebuilt it, thrived for another 40, 50 years, and then... Now highway is going to come and tear it again. She lost it again. And it's often asked, like, well, what happened after that? It's like the soul left. She didn't rebuild a third time because she had already basically been killed twice. And so um, that's what happened to her. So down here, um, like I said, that soul is missing. As I was telling you, you know, in the South, normally you can walk by people, they greet you, say hi, smile. This place, you'll get a cold look when you walk past certain people. Um, there's still black people that look to the ground when they walk by white people here. Like, um, the, if you look up the list of sundown towns, we we still got them in Oklahoma. Um, sundown meaning don't be out past sundown or else you get. Yeah. it's And technically, it was against the law in some of these places for black people to be after sundown. Um, but some of the prominent places here... Well, sundown towns as recently as 20, 30 years ago. So Jinx, Broken Arrow, you know, uh, these are prominent places here, rich white districts for the most part, but they were they were sundown towns in the mid-90s. You know, so um, that just kind of tells you the mentality of this place. Um, and knowing, as we discussed, we got one grocery store, you know, whereas Greenwood itself had 22. So to show that, the city wants to reconcile, and its idea of reconciling, uh, of reconciliation is you get a park. There's no space. It's not an amphitheater. It's not anything you can throw an event at. It's just there's a park, um, beautiful park, but does nothing economically for black people. And that's what we lost as well was, you know, our economics. Then you get a history center that you have to pay to learn your own history. If I'm a descendant, I have to pay to go to go learn what my parents, what my you know what my ancestors built, and also what killed my ancestors. But I'm pretty sure it won't say who killed my ancestors, you know. But I have to pay to go experience that. So that's why I reference black pain and black stories being the most profitable part of America. We built the country off our backs, and the entertainment industry. Still thrives off our backs, whether it's the tourism, if you've been to Alabama, but they have the enslaved people exhibit where you see, you know, these statues of of black men being ripped, you know, enslaved men being ripped from their families. 
while mothers holding a baby crying. And that's something that people go see. People want to see that and experience that. Um, I was actually very uh, grateful that you didn't want to see the pictures of this place. Because doing tours, you know, it, it, it keeps you up at night having to look at these a lot. And knowing that I walk those grounds every day. To know that some of these people weren't found. Some of their legacies never did rebuild. And the people who want to rebuild it don't have the means to. Don't know how. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, I think it's very important that we keep that here. And that when you leave and go to New York City, um, that you, I didn't, I didn't want to sell you black pain or black trauma. I wanted to tell you the condition that we're in because you may have a solution that we can't see because we, we have a different perspective and a different trauma here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So being from New York City or in New York City or Boston, you can show us something or teach us something that we didn't know. And so that's why I do the tours, because I think that I leave knowing something different. You gave me a lot of perspectives that I never thought about. So even if I didn't uh, fully understand it, then I'll go home and think about it. Like, I definitely will. And if, you know, and that may change the way I do some things or change the way I look at some decisions that were made. But I think that that's the most important part of getting black people to come together is being able to say, like, this is my experience um, and not giving you just the traumas of it. Um, if I give you two traumas, I owe you four successes because they're there somewhere. So you should leave knowing both.
I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street.